Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Natalie Freeman. Today, we're so excited to welcome Lauren Aguirre to read from her new book, The Memory Thief. Before we get started, I wanted to remind you that Skylight Books is open for in-store browsing with a limited capacity. We're open from 11 to 7 on weekdays and 10 to 8 on weekends. Masks and social distancing are required, and we ask that you continue to be kind and respectful to our booksellers and your fellow shoppers when you visit us. We are also offering online ordering through our beautiful, newly designed website, which you can find at www.skylightbooks.com. And now I'd like to introduce you to Lauren Aguirre. Lauren is an award-winning science journalist who has produced documentaries, podcasts, short-form video series, interactive games, and blogs for the PBS series Nova, where she worked after graduating from MIT. Her reporting on memory has appeared in The Atlantic, Undark Magazine, and the Boston Globe's Stat. Welcome, Lauren. I'm excited to chat with you today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And do you want to start with reading us a little something from The Memory Thief? Sure. On the first Friday of October, Barish leans forward in his chair and stares at the MRI scan on his monitor. He's looking at the brain of a young man admitted to the hospital last night, and the image is so strange and beautiful that he knows something has to be wrong. Whoa, he says out loud to his empty office. This is weird. Floating brightly against the darker background of the rest of the brain are two C-shaped structures tucked on either side of the central fluid-filled cavity. Together, they make up the hippocampus, the place that holds the keys to memory. And the intense glow is a distress signal for many millions of cells. Some mysterious marauding force has laid waste to just this tiny region, leaving the rest of the brain unharmed. Barish looks out his door to the still quiet waiting room up on the seventh floor at Leahy Hospital and Medical Center in Burlington, Massachusetts, just outside Boston. Then he looks back at the monitor. Last night's phone call from nearby Winchester Hospital requesting permission to transfer this patient suddenly makes more sense. The distraught 22-year-old had recently overdosed. He was dragging one leg and repeatedly asking his mother if he was dying. Winchester is a smaller hospital that handles routine emergencies like a broken wrist or an appendicitis. But when patients with complex conditions or unexplained symptoms come in, the staff will often send them over to Leahy, a 
facility that has hundreds of specialists and more equipment. With a high quality image in front of him, Farish can see what the Winchester staff could not. And it explains why this patient was acting strangely. In 10 years of medical training, Barish has reviewed thousands of scans, brains shrunken from Alzheimer's disease, brains dotted with tiny broken blood vessels, brains with tumors in different sizes, shapes, and locations. In every case, no matter what the damage looked like, it was pretty clear what was going on. But what Barish sees on the screen in front of him is strange and alien, belonging to no category he can imagine. It looks like someone took a page out of his medical school neuroanatomy textbook and deliberately highlighted the brain's memory center. He re-examines the MRI, scrolling up from the base of the skull through the familiar soft gray brain structures until the hippocampus comes back into view. It seems certain that this patient will fail the memory tests they'll give him today. And the damage has triggered Barish's interest in strange cases and rare brain diseases. He believes more in chance than in destiny, but still, he thinks, it's almost as if his years of study have guided him directly to this moment, sitting in this office, looking at this startling image. Thank you so much. And I'm I'm so excited that you chose that passage because it was one of the ones that started to get me thinking about what I wanted to talk to you about. Um, And so I am going to actually bypass my first question I had for you, because hearing you actually read that passage to me rather than me reading it myself reminded me so much of how the book and the story feels like a true crime story Mm -hmm. Um, and how the structure of it and the language you use as well there's so much suspense and intrigue in this mystery. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how that sort of took shape. And Mm -hmm. as well, a little bit of a second question there, the choice to use the word thief in the title, Mm -hmm. bringing in a bit of a a crime essence to it just from the cover. Yeah. Well, so, you know, stories are really how we learn. That's, that's, the human way of of teaching and learning. Um, And what's sort of ironic about this, it took me a while to figure out is that this is what the hippocampus does. It is a sort of narrator of your life. The who, what, where, when, why does it matter? And what does it mean in the context of your whole life? So in a way, the hippocampus is sort of this silent enigmatic protagonist in the middle of the book. Um, kind of spinning out the story. Um, but for me, that's, that's really it. I mean, I think memory is fascinating. There are so many fascinating topics that once you get into them, almost anything is interesting. But I think it really helps to have a story to frame it. And I wanted people who wouldn't necessarily think they were interested in memory or Alzheimer's or opioid overdoses to be drawn into this story. Yeah, it definitely it because it is about so many things, um, you know, so many, but specifically the connection to opioids and then the larger picture of memory itself and how memory is connected to Alzheimer's. But it is such a small story and it felt so accessible, um, I think, because of the the way that it's rooted in a specific place. 
Um, and the way that you kind of start out in one state in one hospital with one group of people, it helps you connect to the story a little bit more. It doesn't feel as gargantuan as memory is and uh, can be. So could you talk a little bit about how you got interested in this story when it kind of hooked you and brought you to that place where you were like, I need to find this guy and hear about this story? So, um, you know, you can always look back in your life and, and choose the point where the story begins. Um, so if I had to choose the point, I would say um, that it was the moment when I lost my memory. And fortunately, it was, it was temporary. But, um, you know, I was just sort of up too early uh, working, as we often are. <clears throat> and um, suddenly I got this creepy sense of dread and then um, slowly kind of, I completely disassociated from reality. So it was, it's called jamais vu, which means never before seen. And I just had no idea who I was, where I was, even once, what century it was. You know, the walls were green. And I thought, is this the middle ages? Like I really had no idea. And so it was so scary that I just lay face down on the floor and waited for it to pass. Um, and then I thought, wow, that's weird. I should see my doctor. And um, she said, oh, that sounds like a seizure and we should get you worked up. Maybe you have a brain tumor. So I had to go see lots of experts. I did have a sort of brain lesion. Um, and one expert said, you need to remove it. It might be cancerous. So I said, let me go to another expert, um, someone who doesn't like to remove things, AKA a neurologist. And he said, no, you can probably keep an eye on it. And then I went to a neurologist friend named Jed Barish and he said the same thing. He said, you can handle this with medication. This, you do not need to do surgery. And he was right. And fortunately for me, and this isn't the case for a lot of people with, with epilepsy, for me, I took the medicine and it was fine. And I, I've never had another seizure. Um, so, you know, Barish and I sort of bonded over weird brains. And then when he started to see these cases, um, he let me know about them. And at the time I was working at NOPA um, and I thought, well, maybe this is how I can um, sort of talk more about memory in a way that isn't just a big book about memory or a big book about the brain, but a way that, that focuses it. And initially I thought, well, this will be a really interesting jumping off point. But the more I looked into it, the more it really wove back and forth between this particular story and what we know about memory and Alzheimer's disease. And that, that sort of entry point in there, something that's in the beginning of the book that I mean, if you're trying to grab people in the very, very beginning, you did with me, which was when you said I was interested in what happens when novel ideas bump up against conventional wisdom, forcing medical science to move ever closer to what will always be an incomplete version of the truth, which I really loved because even in something like the medical field, which you, you want to think it's complete, you want to think that they know everything there is to know and that they will be able to help you with their full set of knowledge and that there isn't anything new. And so I was interested in this idea that 
Barish has as well that he says rules his medical practice of the power of observing, um, which is something that I have tried to do more of in my personal life in a non-medical capacity. Um, and I feel like this past year has left a lot of people either forced to do that or trying to do more of that, just to be more observant and to take things as they are. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that idea of the power of observing and how that can benefit the, the research in these kinds of cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of stepping back and giving yourself a moment to breathe and not have to say right away, this is exactly what's happening. And I mean, in this case, with this, uh, what they call the amnestic syndrome, it's really obviously that they didn't know what was happening. Yeah. I mean, they had no idea. Um, but normally, um, you, you might think you know, but it's always helpful to sort of say, what else could it be? Um, and I think there's rarely the hammer of truth in science. Sometimes there is in medicine, often there is, this is what it is, you take your medicine. But many times, doctors don't exactly know what it is or what the best treatment is. There are options. And so for me, I always appreciate a doctor who not just listens to you, but is also humble enough to say, um, I'm not sure. I don't know. Um, and that I find strangely reassuring. Yeah, that's it's an interesting parallel to kind of what we're dealing with right now, because there was so much of um, the pandemic that when it started, people didn't know anything about and everybody just wanted answers. Um, so it's interesting to to see that parallel between uh, in the medical field with things there are not answers to and how people react to that. You, you saw it on a much smaller scale, but then it opened up uh, in another sense and we got to see how that unfolds, that lack of knowing and kind of what it does to people, that disorientation um, and trying to be okay with not knowing, figuring out how to still take care of yourself with it, which it seems like a lot of the people with your that you noted in the case studies, they kind of had to do that. You have interviews with their families as well, where they said, it's it's fine right now, we're doing what we can because we still don't really know what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think going back to COVID though, people have gotten much savvier about data and what's in the data and what isn't in the data and not jumping to conclusions. Um, and having to live with uncertainty and just realizing, well, this is what we know at this moment and it's going to change. Um, and that, that to me is, that's what science is. I mean, if it weren't mm -hmm. gonna change, we'd be done and you know, everyone <laughs> could shut their labs it'd be story over, but this, yeah. this is a story that doesn't end. Do you, with that thought, do you, could you speak a little bit about, uh, so you say that like the story isn't ending and do you think any of these medical stories really do end? In, I mean, in particular with the memory thief, like I, I don't know how it could really ever end because you would be able to maybe identify this memory thief in the hippocampus, um, but there may always be evolving symptoms. 
So could you speak a little bit just about how we we don't really ever want to close that book? Yeah. Um, so it's unlikely that there would be evolving symptoms. Um, you know, after a few years, um, probably um, the healing that is going to happen has happened. But what continues is the person's ability to manage mm -hmm. it and create a new way of living. Um, in terms of the entire sort of memory thief story, the amnestic syndrome and what does it mean and what can we learn from it? I sort of think of it as, um, you know, if it were a Netflix series, season one would be ending now with COVID mm -hmm. um, and season two would be, okay, so we, we learned this about the hippocampus and what opioids do to it. Now let's go see how we can turn that sad story around and say, how can we learn more about Alzheimer's disease? And can that insight help us prevent memory disorders or treat memory disorders? And one thing I wanted to be very clear about um, is that researchers are not saying that fentanyl causes Alzheimer's or that people you know, shouldn't take opioids after their surgery because it will give them Alzheimer's. That's definitely not what they're saying. It's more that there's some interesting way in which opioids interact with the hippocampus. In some people in very um, rare circumstances does damage the hippocampus in this unusual way. Yeah, and then, I mean, thank you for clarifying that. And that was something I, I definitely did not take that from the book. It, you can see that everything is so isolated. And I felt like that was what was so fascinating about it was because as isolated as they all were, these 14 cases, you could still see the patterns emerging. And we talked about it a little bit, but I don't know if you wanted to speak to it a little bit more, just the how you move to patterns and the, the difficulty with jumping at a pattern and saying this is now connected the correlation versus causation, which you just spoke to of, mm -hmm. it's not always connected, but we need to see if it's connected in order to make a judgment about what's really going on, as well as I think that is partially the public's issue with taking things too quickly and mm -hmm. not grabbing onto things, which leaves you to have to clarify those things more often because people will grab at a headline. A headline about something like that will immediately lead people to make those connections when they aren't in fact there. Yes. So, I mean, that's what, that's what people do though. We, we're, we're pattern seekers. You know, if we weren't, we wouldn't have survived. Um, you need to sort of link things up to make sense of the world. But um, as a scientist or just as a person who wants to be a critical thinker, you then have to say, okay, but how do I probe that pattern? Um, how do I figure out um, whether that pattern is just something that I see that looks appealing or, or is it really meaningful? What else could explain the data? And um, so that's really what happened with Jed Barish when he saw, well, when he saw the first patient in 2012, all he could think was, this is weird. I've never seen anything like this. And I really don't think anyone else has ever seen anything like it. And the, the, um, the other doctors who, who also saw the patient, they sort of talked briefly about let's write up the case, but of course they're all super busy and they didn't have time and time passed on. And 
Farish didn't really think about it again until another patient came into his office with the exact same pattern. And, um, and Barish is also an epidemiologist by training. So he just loves patterns. And so that's how he thinks. And instantly he thought, okay, opioids are the connection. And what, what is happening now? People have been taking opioids for centuries. So what's different? Well, what's different is in Massachusetts, the fentanyl opioid epidemic was just beginning. So that was his immediate pattern, but then he really spends the rest of the book saying, is that what it is? And how would we know? And it's very hard to figure out because these patients often don't come back. Um, they, it's called um, loss to follow-up. Many of them died, many of them just didn't come back. And the testing is incomplete. Um, fentanyl is usually not tested for in hospitals. So really um, they spent a lot of time trying to pin down fentanyl. And, and at the end of the day, that does seem to be the most likely culprit, but you have to be both open-minded and curious and a skeptic at the same time. So it's sort of hard to hold those two things in your mind, but that's what you have to do to be a scientist. Yeah, and I think I think the book does a great job of of not only balancing those two sides, but asking the reader to do the same thing, to mm -hmm. look at these and to see the pattern and to be more observant and open to patterns as well as continuing to be skeptical. Um, and I really, I was wondering if you could speak um, a little bit about, my apologies, I forget his name, but the man who worked at the public health department um, and his, uh, his sort of role in all of this, because I found it so interesting how he had to balance um, working with Barish and sort of assisting him but then also focusing on not just the patients that Barish saw, but looking for it at a much wider scale in the state itself. Yes, so Al Di Maria uh, is his name. Um, and uh, that was really his job is surveillance, is what's happening in the state. Are there, um, you know, there are illnesses that have been established as things that people need to report. If someone has um, AIDS, there's a whole list of, of diseases that need to be reported so that the state can monitor the health of its population. But then there are also, he will get these strange reports every now and then. Um, so and so, you know, in this, in this town, 10 kids have suddenly gotten really sick. You know, what is it? Turned out in one instance, it was milk, a, a new type of milk that wasn't pasteurized or, or something like that. So that's really his job. So when Barish came to him and said, I have these two cases um, and I think there's something going on here and I think it's fentanyl, what can we do? Um, De Maria happened to know Barish and he knew him to be a reasonable person with training in epidemiology who had done his homework and said, I'm not finding other stuff like this in the literature. But he said, go back and look for more. If you find a couple more, let's talk again. And so he did. And that's when De Maria said, okay, four cases is enough to call it a cluster. And we need to put out the call and see if other neurologists have been seeing this as well, because 
these are patients who will go under the radar and get short shrift. They're not mm -hmm. necessarily gonna be paid attention to. So it took some time, but they did finally send out that um, health alert. And within minutes, DeMaria got his first email back asking questions. Within 20 minutes, he got the first case. Um, and people just had, like Barish, had actually seen it, but didn't know what to make of it and sort of filed it away in their mental filing cabinet, not knowing what to do with the information. It's, it's funny that you mentioned if the book were a Netflix series earlier on in our conversation. And then as you were just describing that, I, I remember how visually, uh, like how visually you wrote this part of the book and how well the pacing was as those calls went out and the waiting for the emails to come in. I just imagined it running through like a montage sort of, of marriage. <laughs> here's the, here's the email that went out and then Di Maria just receiving these, the next one, and then the next one came in. Um, because as much time as there was that did pass and the back and forth, like the story really, and this is a testament to, to you as well and how you wrote the story, it just, the pacing of it is so fascinating um, because it's got those lulls in time, but then it picks back up and then it would drop off again. And I don't know if you have an experience with this or if um, this would be more of Barish's experience with what happened between those lulls. I know you read a little bit about his sort of life while things were slow, um, but I was wondering if you could speak to sort of your experience with even writing that. How do you how do you write the the lulls of that time where there kind of was no information and it was sort of going about everyday life with this kind of on the back burner sitting in your mind? So because I, I knew that I wanted to write about more than this syndrome, um, whenever there was a lull, I was reading very dense science papers and talking to really smart scientists about their research on you know, the basic mechanisms of memory or Alzheimer's researchers. You know, why has the field struggled for so long to find a treatment and, you know, is there any hope on the horizon? So, you know, during those lulls, that's what I was doing. And then um, when things picked back up or there was something new, I would turn my attention back to the, back to the syndrome. So I sort of mirrored that structure in a way in the book. Um, and whenever there was sort of a, a break point, I would, I would, then lead the reader to learn more about the science. But I, I tried to always motivate the science by the story. So you're caring about these, these people, these patients. Okay, so they've really damaged their hippocampus. What does that mean? Um, you know, what does the hippocampus do and, and how do we know it? Um, so in that way, I tried to always sort of leave you hanging with a question at the end of every chapter because I want people to read to the end. <laughs> <laughs> well and and speaking of the end I I was very surprised by it. I wasn't I don't know what I I don't know what I was expecting. Some sort of conclusion which there definitely is and people will have to read to find out. Um, but the the way that I think maybe I just haven't read a lot of current nonfiction recently that bumps up against the time we're currently living in because I got to the end of the book and was surprised that all of this had to stop 
sort of, or come to an abrupt stop when the pandemic really started to take hold. Um, and I wasn't prepared for the story to kind of end that way. And so I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how that, uh, how that process went as the research had to kind of take a back seat. And then uh, if you could speak also about the decision to have each of your sort of main characters add to the end of the book the way that you did. So yeah, it was kind of a record scratch stop um, at the end, <laughs> but it, it was sort of coming to a natural stopping point anyway, because you know once Barish and his many colleagues, he wouldn't like it if I acted like, he, he certainly was not the only person working very hard on this. Um, by the time they'd said, okay, here's what it is. We've published definition. We know what causes it. And we know what we want to do next. We know the questions that we want to answer and we know we have to find the money and the research partners. The rest of it, I mean, season two will, will take years before yeah. it's, it's ready to be written. Um, so it was sort of a natural ending point. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it was harder for um, not so much the people working on the syndrome as Alzheimer's researchers who were running clinical trials, which were then in some cases delayed by years because um, you can't just stop in the middle. You have to then yeah. start over and these trials are many years in the making or um, scientists wor working with mice they have to you know, do the experiment at certain times in the mice's life. Yeah. Um, so those experiments were, were often set back by three to six months. So not terrible, but also kind of terrible with in terms of your grants and getting your next grant. So yeah, a lot of scientists and, and doctors took a hit as of course did many, many people. So, um, that's the way it ended. That's just the way it was. In terms of um, asking, so there were five main characters in the book who I asked to write something for the end. And again, I was sort of thinking of it not so much as a Netflix series, but maybe as a docudrama where sometimes at the end, they'll show you documentary footage of the actual mm -hmm. person or the actual event. And I thought, you know, I have done my best to capture who they were and what happened to them and what it meant, but that's my view on it and, and what's their view. So I really wanted my readers to hear directly from them. And fortunately, they all were, were very happy. I left it very open-ended. You know, they said, what do you want to, what, what should I write about? I said, just write about what it means to you, anything you want in that terrain. So they all wrote very different things that really spoke to their personalities and how they approach things. Um, so they're sort of my favorite part of the book, but they won't be that meaningful unless you read the whole, the whole thing. Yeah, it, it definitely, it, it definitely was a nice little bookend there to have followed them all the way through the story and to have seen you describe their lives in those lulls and the, again, very visual pictures of, uh, images of like their desks and like what Barish's office looked like um, and imagining him sitting there looking at those scans. And so it was really, it was really nice and unexpected to be able to 
hear their journey with it sort of in their own words and what the what the journey meant to them in terms of that research. So I definitely was surprised by it and enjoyed that part as well. Oh, good. Yeah, I will say I, I had critics of my proposal, my book proposal, because it, it, it didn't feel like a normal book. It was sort of an obscure story. Um, it wasn't clear how it was going to end. And it also seemed to be about too many things. Um, and you yourself said it's about many things and it is, Yeah. but it's all motivated by the story. I, I do feel like it, at the end of the day, it, it, it does hang together and make sense. I feel like sometimes people don't have enough faith in readers. They can, <laughs> that <may be. laughs> they, there's, there's obviously, you know, there's reason for all criticisms and everything, but no, I mean, it, the story wove so much and there are so many different, I think that's something we've learned too. There are so many ways to tell a narrative, so many ways that people have explored that, that structure and ways that they've done it. And the, the different sections of the book with um, the different case studies, but it, it also, it was broken up in a way that again, you made it very accessible. It didn't feel too dense um, in the science because you were able to move back and forth between the case studies and the specific patients and then into the scientists. And in those lulls, because they existed in their own lives as well, you go into sort of Barish's life and what he's doing in between and all of those things. And there were other things going on in the world. So seeing to how you have to continue seeing patients day to day while you're thinking about these scans and other scans, but that ability to be able to balance both and weave that story for themselves and then for you to retell it so beautifully. It was, it was such a joy to read and I'm, I'm very grateful that it exists. Oh, I'm so pleased. That's so kind <laughs> of you. I'm um, really glad you enjoyed it. I did. And it's, uh, now I really want to see if maybe this will get it optioned for a little Netflix series because that you were describing it that way and I could see it that way completely the um because it it has a trajectory like a lot of things and everybody loves a mystery yeah and this definitely was one I really also hope that um you know as people read this book that um you know, more people to whom this has happened, and I'm sure there are far more people than yeah. they're aware of, will say, oh, that's what happened to me, or, oh, that's what happened to my friend, um, which is just knowing what happened to you can be so meaningful for people just to have a diagnosis or a name, mm -hmm. even if there's nothing to do about it. Um, yeah. To be able to, to understand at, yeah. in any capacity. Yeah. yeah. Well, Lauren, it has been such a joy to talk to you about the memory thief. Before we finish up, are do you have any other events or things coming up that you want to share with us? Um yes. Well, I think I'm gonna be on Morning Joe on June 1st. And um I also I'm giving a lecture in my local library, but it's virtual, the Cary Memorial <laughs> Library here in Lexington. And I'm giving a lecture at one of the oldest lending libraries in the country, Salem Athenium, on Wonderful. June 17th, and another um, at the Harvard Bookstore on June 22nd. 
Great. Well, everyone can look out for those virtual events and can also get their copy of The Memory Thief either in-store at Skylight or on our website, www.skylightbooks.com. Thank you again to Lauren for sharing The Memory Thief with us and for talking to me about all things memory. Thank you to our listeners, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.